3: It's the first time the SEC has sued a CISO, or any individual for that matter, for their role in cybersecurity failures. And it's also the first time the SEC has sued a company for internal controls failures arising from alleged cybersecurity deficiencies that led to a company's inability to protect its key assets during a breach.
1: I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 23rd, 2024. The fallout from the Solar Winds intrusion took a new turn with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission's decision to file a cybersecurity-related enforcement action against the Solar Winds Corporation and its Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO, Timothy G. Brown, on October 30th of last year. To talk about the details and significance of this enforcement action, I sat down with Shoba Pillay a partner at Jenner & Block and a former federal prosecutor, and Jennifer Lee, also a partner at Jenner & Block and a former assistant director in the SEC's Division of Enforcement. We discuss the cybersecurity and national security implications of the SolarWinds hack, what the SolarWinds enforcement action suggests about the SEC's expectation for disclosure obligations of companies and whether the SEC or another agency is best suited to determine whether and how solar winds should be held accountable. We also discussed larger takeaways and messages sent by the SEC's decision to charge a CISO in this case. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 23rd. Shoba Pillay and Jennifer Lee on the SEC Solar Winds Enforcement Action. Shoba, I'd like to start by asking you to describe the nature of the SolarWinds intrusion.
2: What happened and who was impacted? Certainly. So SolarWinds provided various IT management services to its customers. It's a a software as a service company. Its signature product was Orion, a networking monitoring software used by thousands of organizations, both public and private. And according to public reporting a nation-state-sponsored Russia-based threat actor gained access to SolarWinds' network and injected malware into the software, uh, software development process, including updates to Orion. That malware was later described as or called Sunburst. From March to June of 2020, SolarWinds had deployed its Orion software updates or patches to its customers. But that update included the Sunburst malware, of course, without SolarWinds' knowledge. That malware permitted the threat actors to access the impacted networks, meaning the networks of all of the Orion customers. Now, when SolarWinds later discovered the hack and disclosed it publicly, it disclosed that a little less than 18,000 of its 33,000 Orion customers may have installed the malware. Remember, that malware permitted the threat actor to access the networks, systems, and data of thousands of government agencies and private sector companies that were using the Orion software. In fact, public reporting revealed that multiple federal agencies, including Treasury, Commerce, and DHS, were compromised. And some of was revealed that, for example, Treasury and Commerce emails were made public and that DHS networks were infiltrated, among many other examples. And it wasn't until December 2020 that one of SolarWinds' customers, uh, FireEye, that, who used the Orion software. And FireEye is a cybersecurity company, and they were impacted by the compromise. And so when they discovered it in their systems, they notified SolarWinds. And as I understand the timeline that you've
1: laid out, the threat actor, in, in, in this case, it is uh, the SolarWinds intrusion has been attributed to Russia, had access to these client networks for somewhere between six to nine months before the intrusion was ever discovered. Is is that correct? Yes. So generally speaking, then, how would you assess uh, the significance of the SolarWinds intrusion from a cybersecurity perspective?
2: It's an exceptionally nefarious attack. It's really the first time we've seen malware deployed via a software update or a software patch. And that's really very difficult for the customers to be able to protect themselves. Remember, the whole point of a software patch is to correct a vulnerability in the software. So every time a software provider updates its software and pushes out the update, they may discover something else had broken as a result of the update. So they will have to deploy patches. um, So new updates to ensure that those vulnerabilities are protected. And in this case, The malware was hidden within a software patch, and that's like injecting poison into medicine, and it's very difficult for the users to be able to detect easily. And in fact, it was such a sophisticated hack, it really didn't trip any alarms in the development process. Now, normally, a software development process has systems in place to detect when third-party code or software is detected within the code. Here, the malware was so sophisticated, it didn't trip any of those alarms within the Orion systems. So that adds a layer to sophistication that is not common. And so the same was true when it got deployed out to the the Orion customers. All right, and it really changed the landscape for these supply chain attacks because while supply chain attacks had had been happening, it wasn't quite as nefarious as injecting it into a software update. It usually was as a result of, of accessing a company then that access, permitted access to customers through some other VPN or FTP or other connecting point with the customers, not, not necessarily through a software update. So then how should we think about and assess the SolarWinds intrusion from a national security perspective? Because the SolarWinds intrusion impacted such a large number of federal agencies, that's a real national security risk. As I mentioned, Treasury, Commerce, and DHS have all been publicly noted as having been compromised. So this is really a, a true intelligence risk. There's a massive amount of data collection that could have occurred during the time after the intrusion and the time that it was detected. This would be the kind of intelligence coup that a foreign nation state would really benefit from. And coupled with other threat factors, this could be really devastating to U.S. national securities. And
1: in the immediate aftermath of the discovery... What kinds of measures were taken by the government and the private sector
2: to address the intrusion? So the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, issued an unprecedented emergency directive ordering all federal agencies to immediately disconnect Orion from their networks. So that was the remediation in the federal public sector. Private companies engaged in similar remediation efforts. They made every effort to disconnect Orion from their systems they engaged in their incident response plans, they identified and eradicated any malware and any other presence of the threat actor, and then they would have executed their plan to restart operations. But this is really a significant challenge to do as a practical matter because we're dealing with network management software, which thus, as a result of its purpose, touches the entire infrastructure. So it's very difficult to pull that offline, and then put yourself in a position to be able to fully get back up to business in an efficient manner. And then after all of that, the private companies are going to have to deal with the legal implications if any sensitive data, data was exfiltrated.
1: So on that note, I'd like to fast forward, Jennifer, to October 30th of 2023. A significant action related to the SolarWinds intrusion occurred. And what was that?
3: On this date, the SEC filed a high-profile litigation asserting fraud and in internal controls charges against SolarWinds and its CISO, Timothy Brown, in connection with the Orion attack that Shoba just mentioned. And it's fair to say these charges were long anticipated by everyone watching the case following the company's announcements in October 2022 and June 2023 that the company its CFO and CISO had all received Wells Notices, and that is the agency's formal letter of indication that it might charge the recipient of a Wells Notice. And the complaint is aggressive. It's the first time the SEC has sued a company for cyanter-based fraud involving cybersecurity failures. It's the first time the SEC has sued a CISO, or any individual for that matter, for their role in cybersecurity failures, and it's also the first time the SEC has sued a company for internal controls failures arising from alleged cybersecurity deficiencies that led to a company's inability to protect its key assets during a breach.
1: And what specifically does the complaint allege that Solar Winds and Timothy Brown its CISO did?
3: First of all, it's important to note that for the fraud charges, the SEC has to allege that the company here, SolarWinds, acted through someone. So that is the CISO and their liability that the company and the CISO really rises and falls on the same conduct. And at a high level, the SEC in its complaint alleged that SolarWinds through the CISO misled the company's investors by overstating the strength of the company's cybersecurity practices. And in doing that, The complaint points to a number of public statements that they connected to the CISO. So first, a security statement posted on the company's website that was allegedly approved by the CISO. And this statement included a claim that the company followed the NIST framework. They also pointed to the CISO's alleged statements during interviews and press releases, which purportedly touted the strength of the company's cybersecurity practices. So one blog post apparently said that the company places a premium on the security of its products and makes sure everything is backed by sound security processes, procedures, and standards. The SEC in its complaint also asked to allege that the defendants acted with scienter, meaning they intended to deceive investors. And here, the complaint pointed to a number of allegations indicating that the CISO was aware of significant cybersecurity deficiencies. At the time, he allegedly made or approved the statements at issue. And if you look through the complaint, There are a number of allegations basically indicating that the CISO was made aware of various vulnerabilities with respect to the software at issue.
1: Jennifer, you listed off how the SolarWinds Enforcement Action is essentially a number of firsts for the SEC. Can you talk a bit more about the significance of this action on the part of the SEC?
3: The SolarWinds Action Is aggressive, but it's also part of an evolution of the SEC's enforcement program with respect to cybersecurity over the last five years. And it's all part of the SEC increasingly wanting to make cybersecurity a priority for public companies. Now, five years ago, it was not clear that a public company needed to disclose anything about cybersecurity. And the first time that enforcement brought a case was the Yahoo Data Breach case. And there, the facts in the SEC settlement were pretty egregious and clear because it was a message case. So there you had essentially the the company suffered a data breach. Information about that data breach went all the way up to the top executives, and the company failed to disclose that data breach for two years. So very clear as a first message case that a public company needed to disclose something about cybersecurity to their investors. Over time, a lot of the cases have followed the same framework of to the extent that a public company suffers some kind of major cybersecurity incident, they need to make sure that there are proper escalation procedures as well as proper disclosure procedures to make sure that contemporaneous information about a data breach is made available to investors. What is new about Solar Winds is that this is the first time that the SEC has looked at the, the disclosures before a data breach to say, Are you basically misleading the strength of your cybersecurity practices? And that is a new way that the SEC has now looked at cybersecurity. I will pause and say, though, that it is a classic disclosure theory for the SEC. So while it's aggressive, it is part of the way that they typically think about disclosures across Any entity that they regulate, whether that's a public company or an investment advisor or a broker dealer, essentially, if you are going out there and saying you are trying to follow some framework here, the NIST framework, and you have reason to know that you are falling below that standard, then the SEC will say that that initial disclosure is misleading.
1: And just so our listeners are aware, you mentioned the Yahoo enforcement action. You were actually an official at the SEC at the time of that enforcement action and worked on that matter. Is that correct? I, I did. So I want to also put this solar winds enforcement action in context with the relatively new SLIBER disclosure rule that was adopted by the SEC on July 26, 2023. Can you tell us a bit about that rule and its purpose? Yes,
3: the the new rules are really designed by the SEC to take a top to bottom approach to, to public companies to make sure that they make cybersecurity a priority. And so the, the new disclosure requirements really span everything from not only incidents and what needs to be disclosed in the event of a data breach or any kind of attack that might affect a public company's business, but it also goes into disclosures regarding a public company's governance and risk management. Overall, just how is a public company addressing cybersecurity? And in my view, this is all part of the SEC's focus on making cybersecurity an important part of what public companies should be thinking about. They are trying to be responsive to investors because they think that cybersecurity is important to investors and they are trying to meet investors where they are. The other thing I would note is that it's not surprising that the new rules came out and around the same timeframe, the SEC's enforcement division also brought the Solar Winds complaint because this is pretty typical for the SEC when they want to introduce a new disclosure requirement. They also want to follow that up with an enforcement action that really emphasizes why is this disclosure requirement important? And so here you have the new rules, which say top to bottom, public companies need to be thinking about cybersecurity with the SolarWinds complaint, which really looks at how is a public company from top to bottom really thinking about cybersecurity and what are they presenting to investors in terms of how good is their cybersecurity practices?
1: And has the new rule gone into effect
3: Yes, they went into effect last month and many companies now are obviously trying to deal with uh, how to comply with the new rules.
1: So what then does the SEC's solar winds enforcement action suggest about its approach and expectations regarding companies obligations under this new rule?
3: So I think specifically with respect to solar winds, I don't think that the SEC is trying to dictate exactly what a company should be doing by way of cybersecurity practices. So they are not going out there and trying to say, you should be following this framework versus another. It is still within the traditional disclosure framework of, if you are going to say you follow a practice and you're actually not doing that, or you have reason to believe you're falling below it, then that is, that is what they're going to be looking at from a disclosure framework. Now, the practical reality is These new rules require companies now to say, what are they doing to address cybersecurity? And so in the past, whereas public companies might have taken the position of cybersecurity just isn't really material to what we're doing, now they have no choice. They have to make those disclosures. And I think the difficult thing that SolarWinds emphasizes now is if you are going to say something about cybersecurity, then you have to be complete and accurate. And what's hard for public companies is that they're going to have to grapple with, how do you say something meaningful about cybersecurity and where you're at without providing a roadmap to attackers as to what your vulnerabilities are that That is a difficult position for public companies?
1: I presume that the issue you have identified here was raised during the notice and comment period uh, for the rule before it was adopted. Did the SEC take these concerns into account in your view?:
2: Yes, the SEC absolutely did take um, this concern into account when revising the rule during the comment period. In fact, it, I think it was part of the reason the comment period was reopened. But ultimately, even with the narrower expectation of the, the, the descriptions and detail of any incident in an AK, or of any risks identified in a 10K, even with that expectation that it not be very detailed, it's still a complicated issue for co- public companies to grapple with. As Jennifer correctly knows, you really need to balance saying something that's meaningful and accurate about the state of your cybersecurity or the the reason to the extent known of the incident with your ability to protect your systems and not declare to threat actors the reason why the threat actor was able to intrude. And that is a really complicated balance, even if you don't have to go into detail.
3: I think the one thing I would add is the SEC in addressing the comments basically said, okay, fine. A company does not need to get into the nitty gritty of what happened during an attack, but a company does need to think about just did that attack materially impact its business, operations, overall financial results. And unfortunately, I think for public companies, that puts them in a tough position because it's very hard when you're thinking about just what exactly is happening during attack and what actually is being impacted, those two questions are intertwined. So while I think the SEC was trying to be sensitive to this idea of you don't need to disclose just how exactly your system was vulnerable, what exactly was impacted, I think the second part of the analysis, which is what what actually happened to your business, it, it is still part of the same analysis. So So it's still a difficult position for public companies to be in.
0: plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten... 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
1: So do you all think that the SEC's action in the SolarWinds case is an appropriate exercise of its authority? And and does it serve broader cybersecurity interests?
3: I think the SEC is trying to be responsive to investors. And there are at least a couple of instances where the SEC has noticed that a company stock price has responded negatively to the disclosure of a data breach. I mean, that is the classic disclosure case. And is they are trying to think about Traditional frameworks in terms of how the SEC typically thinks about disclosure, and they want to apply it to a new area that they believe investors care about, which is cybersecurity. So in many ways, this is just the same thing, just applied to a new area. And you know, I, I think for what it's worth, they, they really are trying to think about investor harm. The enforcement director in in thinking in talking about. Data breaches essentially said yes. The company could be a victim of a data breach, but the company could also add to that harm if they then mislead investors about what is going on with the data breach, what is going on with their cybersecurity practices. So I think this is the SEC's effort to try to figure out how can they be responsive to investors, you know, while still staying true to the things that they normally do in their enforcement program.
2: And Shoba, do you have thoughts on this as well? I do. You know, I, while well, I appreciate and what I consider to be really the laudable you know, effort of the SEC to ensure companies are forthcoming with investors, right? Their mandate is investor protection. And I also agree that this is really a case about fraud. But here, you know, the SEC is claiming that SolarWinds was not truthful about the state of its cybersecurity. And in doing so, it's it's making claims about the allegations are that the disclosures, for example, about following the NIST framework are fraudulent. Um, because Solar Winds was the victim of a cyber attack and therefore shows that it did not have sufficient cybersecurity. So that's the essential link of the allegation. So a couple of problems with that. Um, number one is that the NIST framework is a maturity model. So it's not really um, reasonable to expect any organization to be at a five, which it's a, it's a five-point scale typically. Um, the idea is that it's a framework for maturity. So it's a spectrum for organizations to be able to, to map against as they improve their security and the expectation is a lot of industries are still you know working toward they're often in the 3s or 4s or not at 5 and i think it'd be interesting to see as the facts get developed where solarwinds was as compared to others in its industry for from a benchmarking standpoint the other problem is when when relying heavily on internal communications and comparing that to external communications about the state of the cybersecurity the point there is okay well internally they were You know, concerned about the state of their security and externally they were claiming that they were very secure and therefore they were lying because they got hacked. Well, I don't know that the allegations make clear the correlation as between what was uh, security risks were identified internally in those communications and the actual basis for the intrusion. In fact, the basis for the intrusion, the, the initial intrusion by the threat actor into SolarWinds Network has not been publicly identified. So I don't know if the SEC knows what happened I don't even know if solar winds knows what happened um, so without that information it's really hard to correlate directly the the risks identified by solar winds internally and the communications identified in the allegations in the complaint and what actually happened and so for those reasons I think it's complicated to be able to say that the SEC you know is really a- addressing the real realities of our threat landscape and so to the extent the SEC is trying to, to bring discipline in this area, I, I think that adds the additional question is whether they're really the most qualified to do so. And I fully appreciate that there is a gap in in regulatory and uh, enforcement in the cybersecurity arena. And I think cybersecurity has become mission critical to organizations and it's critical to our national security. But I'm not sure that disclosure regime governed by the SEC, is really the place to start. It's an awkward regime to be regulating something as technical as cybersecurity. And Shoba, I
1: want to push you on that a a little bit because uh, you do acknowledge that we don't have the perfect enforcement and regulatory statutory framework yet. So given the impact to national security that intrusions like this can cause, which you clearly have acknowledged. I mean, is this the best we've got so far? Do you think there's another agency right now that is better situated to examine and and hold, you know, incidents like the one occurring with respect to solar winds as described in the complaint to, to hold solar winds accountable?
2: Sure. So, you know, There is no federal regulatory regime that broadly governs cybersecurity at this time. There is a patchwork. So, you know, personal health data, for example, um, the Department of Health and Human Services has issued cybersecurity standards for organizations that have that kind of data. So it's properly protected and they have an enforcement regime for organizations that fail to comply. There is a fairly robust uh, cybersecurity standard regime under the for defense contractors and government contractors under the Federal Acquisition Regulations and the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations, FAR and DFAR. And of course, the enforcement mechanism is through the False Claims Act. And then there are standards provided for critical infrastructure via CISA, and uh, TSA provides standards for our transportation network and for the pipeline. So there's a patchwork. So I think what I am acknowledging is that there's no sort of broad federal regulatory regime in place yet. What I'm saying is that I don't know that the SEC is the one who should step in. The SEC, which is relatively small in comparison to other executive agencies, took this upon itself. And it may not be the most su- well-suited. As you correctly point out, this is a real national security list, uh, risk, and this is that's not really the purview of the SEC, It is true that Congress has not yet granted authority to any federal agency to broadly regulate cybersecurity, but it does seem reasonable that another agency, maybe it is CISA under DHS, um, should have the authority to more broadly regulate this industry and have the technical expertise and, frankly, the resources to address this issue. So, Jennifer, I'd like to
1: turn to what we know about how SolarWinds has responded to the enforcement action What is the current status of the case? And have uh, SolarWinds officials made public statements about the SEC complaint?
3: So my understanding is that last month, the parties, meaning SolarWinds, the CISO, and the SEC, the, the lawyers for those entities, showed up to court and had an initial case management conference. And at the conference counsel for the company indicated that they were planning to move to dismiss the complaint. And my expectation is they are planning on fighting this as far as they can go. They made comments during the hearing that, you know, essentially amounted to the SEC's complaint is agency overreach. And what they are doing by this complaint is really trying to regulate through enforcement versus using rulemaking or some other more appropriate way of looking at cybersecurity. And so my expectation is, you know, they will litigate this as far as they can go. Probably there's enough there in the complaint to survive a motion to dismiss. It'll be interesting to see what, if anything, gets dismissed or partially dismissed. So we'll have to see. I think there's a lot of allegations in there where we'll just see how things shake out after the motion to dismiss.
1: And Jennifer, is it common practice for companies to make public statements at at this stage of an enforcement action, you know, specifically about allegations in the complaint?
3: I think it's the new norm because the SEC has been much more aggressive in terms of litigating cases. Because in the past, For the most part, the SEC's enforcement program really had a lot of settlements. I think most public companies would settle. But now, as the SEC has become more aggressive in their theories and who they are charging and what they are charging... I think more parties feel emboldened to fight back. You see this happening not just in cybersecurity with the SolarWinds complaint, but also in crypto where, you know, any novel area where there is just an uncertainty as to the edges of the SEC's enforcement program, I think more parties are willing to uh, fight back and challenge the scope of the SEC's authority and how far they're going to go. I've also seen some
1: concerns expressed in the public realm about the fact that the complaint charges a CISO, what kind of message do you think that that sends? Uh, Jennifer, you you indicated that legally the company had to act through someone, but does that someone always have to be the CISO?
3: So it's interesting you mentioned. So th- there's a couple of questions there, and I'll start with your last question first. Interestingly, the SEC not only sent a Wells notice to the CISO and to the company, they also sent one to the CFO. And I guess time will tell to see if the SEC ultimately ever charges the CFO. My guess as an outsider looking in is that the SEC probably decided that they wanted to make the strongest Message case that they could just with respect to cybersecurity. And so they focused their action on the company and the CISO. And in their own way, this is their way of saying they want to make cybersecurity a, a priority and they want to elevate the CISO to a place of importance in terms of, you know, this person making disclosure decisions and approving important disclosures about cybersecurity. I think the reality is what we've been hearing is that CISOs feel like they've got a target on their backs now and they're not supported by their companies and they feel misaligned with their company and with their legal department when in reality, now is really the time to even draw closer together to have clarity about who was supposed to be in charge of reviewing what for and for what purpose and who has the disclosure obligations. So my my message right now to CISOs as all of that is being worked out is that they really need to be aware of their disclosure obligations. They have to be mindful that any public statement, no matter how informal the forum, is fair game. You see that in the SolarWinds complaint, where the complaint refers to interviews, blog posts, security statements that may or may not have been touched by the CISO. Those are all things that the SEC is going to scrutinize. A CISO also needs to think about, are they being asked to certify controls or designated by any policy To touch cybersecurity, because those are all things that the SEC is going to look at if there's a major incident. And then the final thing that CISOs really need to be careful of is are they being asked, whether implicitly or explicitly, to sign off on the accuracy of press releases, filings, or public statements that discuss cybersecurity? Because the SEC, again, may in hindsight look back on emails. And if a CISO is on the CC line, and if it's not clear who should be reviewing, a cybersecurity disclosure for accuracy, the assumption may be, well, that responsibility lay with the CISO.
2: And Jennifer is exactly right about it's really important that the CISO be aligned with the company and feel like they are part of the team. One of the concerns I have with the, the nature of the allegations in this matter, particularly as it relates to the CISO, is that there's real risk that CISOs will feel stifled. And so a lot of, you know, really important conversations are had in public arenas. They may be sitting on a panel at a conference or in a a working group or in some fashion that their statements could be considered public and therefore consumable by the public and therefore um, subject to SEC scrutiny. But if they feel uncomfortable being honest about the state of security risks, particularly in light of the evolving threat landscape. They may not be working with their um, the other CISOs and other security professionals in a public way in order to vet these issues. And that's where a lot of really important discussion can happen. And so it really concerns me that the public discourse may be stifled as a result of this scrutiny. And number two, thinking about the internal communications, because a lot of internal communications, internal uh, chat messages and emails are identified in the allegations in the complaint which are from the cybersecurity professionals at the organization expressing concern about the state of cybersecurity. And what this may do is cause those professionals from also feeling uncomfortable in communicating those risks, which means there be less discourse and less transparency internally, creating further security risks for the organization. And so those are sort of the impacts that I'm concerned about. I recognize the SEC's point is, if you see an issue and you talk about it, you should do something about it. That's a fair point. But I think the overcorrection over concern is that people just stop talking, and that is not in the best interest of our cyber or national security.
1: Are there any other thoughts that either of you would like to share with our listeners?
2: Yeah. So I think one thing I think we, we also have to recognize is that as the SEC cyber rules are going into place and companies are required to put forth more detail about their cybersecurity posture it is going to become a target for threat actors. An example um, of how sophisticated threat actors are as it relates to our U.S. regulatory regime is there was a uh, hacker from the Revil threat actor group who was interviewed last year, and he was really honest and said, listen, we are paying attention to what is happening in the United States. Uh, we know, for example, that insurance providers provide insurance, uh, cyber insurance so they, he actually was part of a team that hacked a number of insurance companies in order to determine which companies had the most cyber coverage, and that became their target list because they figured, well, if they're covered by insurance, they're more likely to pay the ransom. Now, that may not be true as a technical matter, but it certainly was a basis for uh, intelligence collection by the threat actor. I see that absolutely being uh, true for Edgar. I think threat actors are going to target these disclosures, comb them to discover who has uh, disclosed you know, significant cybersecurity risks and and put them on the target list. And that is part of the threat landscape that just does not exist in, in other arenas in the regulatory regime. And if you build an AML program, for example, and anti money laundering program, once you've built it, it's pretty much ready to go. There might be some changes in the financial regs. There might be some changes um, in the international regulatory regimes in output from FinCEN. But ultimately, your program is your program and you're able to deploy it consistently. That's harder to do in the cybersecurity realm because the threat landscape is constantly evolving. Every single day, there's a new threat. Every single day, there's a new zero day and a new new malware to be uh, fighting. And software is constantly changing and upgrading, and new risks are identified. So it's much harder to have a consistent model. So one of the recommendations is really thinking about cybersecurity through a compliance risk and governance model, thinking about it more holistically and company-wide will ensure that your ability to um, be a little bit more nimble in the wake of this landscape and that you're prepared.
3: The only thing I would add is SolarWinds is a bellwether case, and it'll be so interesting to see just how, once this case moves through litigation, once we see just what allegations are going to stand the test of time, how is the SEC going to fare if this goes all the way through trial, it'll be interesting to see how this case ultimately shapes the SEC's enforcement program, because there are a lot of different types of allegations in the complaint. I think there's a lot of the SEC basically trying to be as aggressive as possible in terms of seeking fraud charges, not just against an individual, but also against the company in the space. So I think only time will tell in terms of just, is SolarWinds just the first of many cases to come? Or are elements of it going to be pieces of the SEC's enforcement program? It's just too hard to say at this point, but it'll be so fascinating to watch as, as the case continues through litigation.
1: Well, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you both so much for joining me. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and the Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.